Happy Mentor Monday. Welcome to another episode of Season 4 of Mentors on the Mic podcast, your resource for all things mentors in this incredible industry we are in. And I really focus on how these mentors started in their careers, and then how did they move up to where they are today, and any wisdom they can impart on us in the meanwhile. I'm your host, Michelle Simone Miller. And I thank you for being here. Please, if you can, leave a five-star rating and review on whichever platform you're listening to this episode. I would so appreciate it. And if you could also write to me, I'm uh, find me on Instagram. I'm at, at Michelle Simone Miller and at Mentors on the Mic. Follow along. Send me a message. Let me know what you think of this episode. I love to hear from people or else it just feels like I'm talking into the abyss. All right, well, let's get started on this week's episode. Ben Feingold is the CEO of Samuel Goldwyn Films. Sounds familiar, right? It is the source, the home for some incredible movies. And this particular mentor has had quite a journey. He he became a lawyer and he was doing all this different law stuff before he transferred. And he was like, you know, I want to try out this uh, this entertainment industry, if you will, right? He was a corporate lawyer and they hired him for his particular knowledge of things. And he blew up. He did so well. And he sort of came, you know, moved on through Sony Pictures, through TriStar Home Video, through Screen Gems, and now at Samuel Goldwyn as their CEO. We talk about so many things. Ben has been in the industry for so long. You'd be surprised at how many things he was in or around where, you know, for example, he was around with the release of the movie When Harry Met Sally. He was actually the savior. I quoted that word, the savior of that movie. He talks about uh, Seinfeld being put on the air, being canceled twice, and how they never thought Seinfeld would do well in syndication. Not him, but they as in the company. Um, He talks about making a deal with Dave Chappelle to make one of his first concert movies. He talks about his reaction to Michael Mann coming um, with the biopic of of, uh, Ali and what he thought of that. And he was also really instrumental in the early adoption of DVDs and distribution. And he talks so much about what that evolved into and what's that looking like now. But he's like the king of just like knowing all about distribution. Um, And in fact, a couple of years ago, um, they won the Oscar for another round, which was, if you guys remember the foreign language film from Denmark um, that they got the distribution to. So I learned so much in this particular episode. I cannot wait for you to hear. Um, There is a little bit of an audio issue in this one. So sorry ahead of time. There's a little bit of like a clicking thing. I tried to get rid of a lot of it, uh, but there's still a little bit there. So I apologize in advance for that, but I hope you like this episode. Without further ado, here's Ben Feingold. Hello, Ben. Welcome to Mentors on the Mic. How are you? Very good. Thanks good. for inviting me. Thank you for, for being here. I, I know you're really busy. Um, I always like to start off right away with my first question, which was, what was your first role in the entertainment industry? My first role was, uh, I was headhunted into Columbia Pictures, which was then at uh, 7-Eleven Fifth Avenue in New York City. Uh, as assistant general counsel. So it's effectively the number two lawyer in the company. And at the time, the company was Columbia Pictures, TriStar Pictures, 
Lowe's Theaters, um, RCA Columbia Home Video. Uh, this was, uh, I think, September of 1988. And you were a lawyer. So, uh, yes, it was life is not a straight line and uh, the journey is the end. So for me, uh, I went to Brandeis, London School of Economics for master's and then law school at what used to be Hastings UC and now will be University of California, San Francisco. Corporate law in New York and just was headhunted in by the COO and CEO of uh, Columbia Pictures at the time. And you didn't want to get into the movie business at first, right? Uh, I was no different. I liked movies no more or no less than any person who grew up in the 70s, 60s, 70s, uh, and 80s. I enjoyed movies. Uh, it was not of essence to me. I was never a writer. Uh, I was never... Uh, I never considered myself to be a creative person. Hmm. It was literally uh, somebody said they, they wanted me to come in because they were looking for really hard, solid, analytic and business principles to help deal manage the chaos of dealing with creative people and all the chaos that comes in when you're trying to actually make, make programming. My skill set was the opposite of what most people who went into the business were, and even what most entertainment lawyers were. So it was just a serendipity. So you were there. What kind of stuff would you do there in that first position as a lawyer for them or counsel for them? I mean, I can tell you the first things I did in the first year. Uh, first thing I did is make a deal with a guy named Joe Weinberger. It was a TV deal. Uh, to ma He had made Taxi, a TV right. show. So we had done a big deal. I had to close that with a lawyer who refused to close. Ooh. So they brought me in actually to get it done. Nice. Uh, raise money for Castle Rock Entertainment. Uh, I joined, uh, I was the Columbia representative with uh, Alan Horn and Rob Reiner. So they asked me to help guide the company, represent Columbia, help them raise money so they could make, you know, the first movie was what Harry Met Sally, which I went. We had to lend them the money. They didn't have any money to release oh, the movie. And I went. You were their savior. Uh, that was my job to help be their savior. And yeah. I remember seeing the first show at the Beekman because uh, Rob Reiner called. They said, go to the Beekman, go to the first show. Tell me what happened. And uh, I called him. I called everybody at Castle Rock at the time, uh, Rob and Alan Horton. And I went to like the 11 or 1030 show and a funny story. So I said it was packed and, and people clapped. And they were so over the moon. And then they called me back two minutes later and said, were they standing? <laughs> and some people were. So any other movies? I mean, obviously, what was your th initial thought on, on When Harry Met? Well, I thought it was a good movie. They were kind of running out of money. And uh, we had to lend them the money to release the movie. If, if it had bombed, it would have been. Uh, uh, but there were other movies that they were making. And so I was then, the issue on that, deal was that they had negotiated their own green light and independence but didn't have the capital and some of the people at columbia didn't really believe in giving that type of freedom to people so there was always a tension and i was kind of in the middle but ultimately helped them raise money so they didn't need i mean the next movie they wanted to make was lord of the flies and people at our company didn't want them to make it it's a little risky. It's a little controversial, that one. Yeah, so they, they made the movie. It did not do well. Uh, so the company then needed more money. 
And so there was always a process when they were teeing up uh, movies. And then, and that was like my first year. And then they were doing TV shows. The funny thing about Castle Rock is Glenn Padnick was head of TV production at the time. He was a great guy. And Alan Horn was involved, who had a big career at Castle Rock and Warner and Disney. And he was at my wedding, so I've known him for a long time. I stayed involved through 94 with the company. Um, they were always having money problems. I would have to get money from, or I would have to do financial engineering to keep them going. And uh, we raised some money with a, a bank loan, and then, and then we did a Westinghouse credit. All their television production, uh, nothing hit. And then they had this one show called Seinfeld Chronicles. Ooh. NBC put it on the air twice and canceled it. And then finally, they, their new shows bombed again. So they put it on TV in the summer, and then it was Seinfeld, and it became a huge hit. And then we ended up selling the company to Ted Turner. And this is what's because I was a corporate lawyer, I could figure out all of this kind of thing where most people are just trying to make what they want to make. I, I desperately wanted to keep the company because I thought it was going to be a big hit and I liked the people. But um, the head of syndication of TV didn't think Seinfeld would do that well in syndication. You know, too urban, too Jewish. That was syndication was kind of a, at that time, kind of a white man's club, a station by station market. Great guys, you know, not not my background, but great guys. They didn't see what it became. Sony had lost a lot of money and they needed the money. Ted Turner wanted to buy it in the worst way. But because I'm a good negotiator, I kept the distribution rights to the show for Columbia. And so that turned into... Yeah, like uh, in excess of a billion dollars. I think that in terms of that's just the Columbia piece of it. Uh, so uh, all those people made a lot of money. So that's what, you know, I started as a lawyer and then Sony bought the company and it was unclear who was going to be brought from New York to stay. I was nervous that I would not have a job. And since I had only been there a year before Sony bought it, and I worked that that much, even though I was out in L.A. about a third of the time staying at the Four Seasons because they wanted me to be in L.A. even though I lived in New York. Once I knew that they were they'd hired Peter Goober and they were hiring a new team, I started to interview. I interviewed with Barry Diller and Jonathan Dolgen to become general counsel of Fox Inc. when Barry Diller was at Fox so I didn't get the job. I didn't. Offer. I was too young. I was about thirty-three at the time. Sony heard I was interviewing and immediately uh, uh, made me an offer to move to California. Uh, and I did not want to be a lawyer at the time. So I said, "Why don't I start a corporate development department and we'll look at you know entertainment-related business ventures like channels or uh, new businesses involving." you know, filmed entertainment. So Sony said, yes, Peter Goober was very kind. He said, I hear you're a really smart, bright young guy, not like us, you know, but he's smart as they come. And then we started, I uh, started the corporate development department and we started making film financing, starting channel, we started some channel businesses, larger distribution deals. So it really was not from the creative side at all that I was involved. The creative came later. 
so now you were here. Where, where, what was like the next step? So how long were you at this particular? In, in corporate development, I was, I was there from 90 through 94. And I loved it. I mean, we started the game show channel. We started planning that. So which we did from scratch. It didn't exist. There was no game show channel. We had, we had bought Wheel of Jeopardy in 1987. So we had the best two game shows. So there's a guy, Mel Harris, who came in from Paramount, who's a dear friend and a mentor, the opposite, like a Kansas Republican. And, uh, but he became my best friend at the company. Mel's like, well, what do you want to do? What do you, let's start something. And he said, what, have you gone through the library? And I said, yeah. I said, well, what do we have that really we can't do anything with? And I said, honestly, we have these game shows. Wheel and Jeopardy are making a lot of money, but we had bought Goober. Peters had, had bought uh, Barris Entertainment. So we had the gong show and the price is right. And, and we had all these things that were not on the air at the time, but we own the rights. So I'm like, we have all these game shows. He said, great, let's start a game show channel. I said, okay. So we started planning that. And then I acquired two libraries for the company. One was um, the Goodson Todman Library, which was a very big game show production company. Uh, Mark Goodson was the founder. I bought it from his son. And then there was Barry and Enright, which had other game shows. So we actually bought these libraries. And then we, uh, Mel came from cable TV business and was a broadcaster. So we actually then went around to cable companies and said, we want you to carry this new show, this new network called The Game Show. And we negotiated deals with them. And, uh, and then we built a studio in Culver City on the lot and launched it. And as soon as we launched, we were up for three months. And then Mel said, we're great. We're up. Uh, you're no longer involved. You have to go do. No, no. He was doing it. He said, I'm going to give it to the TV division to run. And we'll be off doing creating another thing. So initially, uh, I was sad because I thought if I gave birth, I helped. I I was not. Yeah, it's like a baby. It wasn't just me. It was uh, Andy Kaplan who was in TV and uh, Mel, and we hired a guy to run it. You had been with it. From well, the beginning. yeah. It was-, For, it was about it was about it was about eighteen months. It wasn't. It was a combination of Mel, Andy, and myself. It, it was. I went through the library, so we had these game shows. Mel said, "Let's do a channel." Andy was in TV, and so uh, so we all did it, and then we launched it. And he said, well, now that it's launched, it goes out of corporate development into the division. So it's logical. It's like saying the movie is made, then it goes into distribution. And it's different from the people who made the movie, uh, who may be good movie makers but not good at distribution. Right. So initially you were upset about it, but were you ready to, like, do it again? Yes, so we did. So uh, the next was I got a call uh, from uh, the head of Sony uh, Music and the head of uh, Sony Software at the time, a guy named Mickey Schulhoff, who's also a Brandeis graduate. So he called me and said, well, we're thinking of doing a, a music channel in Europe, but we don't really, you know, we're music people. I mean, the music company says we're music people. But we, w- we want to create like an MTV in Europe. And we have Warner wants to do it with us. And so why don't you represent Sony Music and Sony and Columbia and help get a, a channel on? So, I w- so there are things like that and then raising money for movies uh, through insurance companies. And, and then in 1994, I was asked to run home video. Again, I resisted. 
you know, I didn't want to do it. I was having too much fun. But the the, the guy was running home video. They he did. They didn't think he was for, enough forward thinking. And I didn't know what I was doing. So they said, "Here you go." They had lost some money on making some independent movies. So they said, "You figure it out and you run it." And it seems like there's a lot of learn as you go. There is, and so, but you have to have mentors who don't have a solution. But some of the things that I was involved in were not mature. So. It's about taking a body who is a paranoid or brilliant enough to be paranoid or to be energetic enough to try to see the future and or help make it rather than if you're on a baseball team and the team is losing, then you hire a manager from a team that's winning. So there was no league yet. There was no game show channel. There was no music channel in Germany. There was no, in home video, there was no DVD. There was just VHS tapes for rental. So I was very involved in the DVD format, helped launch that, helped launch the Blu-ray format, helped do the digital, getting Sony into the digital businesses. And Which was huge. It was. I mean, I had a lot of resistance uh, to a lot of things. Uh, and it, usually I just did stuff and I explained later. I was actually interested in the technology because I'm a, a bit of a nerd. So when we were developing the DVD format, Sony did their, they said, here it is. And I said, this doesn't quite work. I mean, the first thing they showed us was discs and caddies that looked like Nintendo cartridges that had 72 minutes of movies. And I remember saying to the chairman of Sony, Ogasan, I said, Ogasan, it's wonderful, but uh, there are two issues. The first is the average movie is 90 minutes. So we would want only to be one playback device, not two for a movie. Otherwise, people attention span. Well, I mean, I remember Titanic had two VHS, right? Yeah. It was like part one and part two. Right. People would be like, I only want to watch part one today. I can't be too sad. Yeah. So so we wanted to make it easy. And also we said, just make a bare disc because it's cheaper to make. And so we could sell it at a lower price. So they went back to Japan and their, to their credit and they you know, changed the compression algorithm to get more to fit on a, a disc. And then there were format wars, and that was that was just horrible to deal with. But I mean, DVD sales became so integral yeah. to movies. I mean, at one point, I mean, it's not as much now, but at one point, people wouldn't worry quite as much about how a movie did in the box office. Yeah, they'd rely more on the yeah. sales of the DVDs afterwards. Yeah, so that that was the division I was running, and we were doing about sixty five percent of the cash flow in the entire company. Wow. It and so wow. I had all of a sudden I had we were making close to three billion dollars worldwide and all of a sudden I had people calling me every day. They just wanted to be there because it was big and I just wanted to get off the phone and make more money for the company. But people would call me and say, like, I hear there's a new box set of like Clint Eastwood movies. Like a producer would call me. a famous producer, I won't say who it is, would call me. Yeah, and and I would say, uh, yeah, there is. And they said, could you get it for me? And I said, say, here's my credit card. You can buy it on Amazon. Well, you know, people started to think I, you know, I was running this massive store. You were the hookup. Yeah, people would call and say, yeah, exactly. And I would, you know, sometimes I would say, I have a hundred dollar bill right here for you. Come pick it up and go buy it by yourself. That was on a yeah, but. People in Hollywood, the agents were in the super um, 
uh, business of making it easy for clients. So they would basically push push back on us like they were like powerful agents and they could get you to do stuff. And I would say, we paid your client $20 million to be in the movie. Here's $300. You can come pick it up and go to Best Buy and buy the movies. I said this to one of the, the heads of one of the top agencies at one point. Because the lack of intelligence, like you can just go buy the DVDs for your client, tell them you got them from Columbia. But why bother an executive who's under enormous pressure to make uh, you know money uh, to pay for more movies? But you know, people don't have common sense. Well, when did I mean? When did actors then start getting a piece of that? Like, I mean, it started. We we always resisted in our deals with whether it was like Adam Sandler or Will Smith or whether it was Steven Spielberg. I mean, we did. I was involved in deals with all of them. At one point, I went over to this after running DVD the company. Lost a lot of money. They asked me to go to the studio to be partnered with Amy Pascal. So I did that for two years, you know. Uh, and but I was meant to be the business partner that that said, "No, Amy, you can't do that," because she was not as uh, savvy about the money part. And so we did that for two years. We made a lot of money, and then they said, "You're too rough. Go back to run home video." They didn't really want uh, to change the culture, which was very indulgent towards creativity. And I'm indulging. I was indulged to creativity that made money. Right. Well, you once we'll talk about it, actually, because I mean, I've interviewed you before for a panel. And I remember you said and I, I remembered this, that you said that, like, you know, you have to have this balance to be an executive in this industry. You have to have a balance of creativity and business. And you always felt like you were more of a business person, but with creative instincts. Yeah, that's those are the words I like to say. So some things are instantly wonderful and instantly not wonderful. For example, I remember when uh, Amy came in and said, look, Michael Mann has this great movie. He's going to make the biopic of Ali. And I'm like, no. And she's like, you know, why? And I said, because everybody knows the story. And Michael Mann is a terrorist. The budget, whatever the budget is, he doesn't care. He just doesn't care. And his deal is a gross deal. So he doesn't, he's not even incentivized from a normal perspective. So it'll go over budget and it, it's not a story that is going to resonate outside of the U S because while he's Michael, uh, he's Muhammad Ali, he's not Michael Jackson. So it's not like, uh, and everybody knows the story of his life. So we ended up compromising. And just to sort of say quickly, I mean, so you're also looking at it, obviously, from an international perspective for this, because that that's how you make money in movies. You can't look at it just it's, from it, domestic sales. You have to look at every revenue source around the globe and every uh, and every cost. So in the case of that one, uh, John Kelly, who was chairman at the time, said, what do you want to do, Ben? And I said, honestly, I would just get rid of the project, lose what we had into it, which is $18 million. And he didn't want to do that. So I said, look, we can sell foreign off to somebody and cut hedge our risk. So we did that, but we still lost a you know, tremendous amount of money because it did 50 million at the box office. It, it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't. It, was, a, it wasn't a home run. It wasn't a hit. It it wasn't a hit, but it cost 120 million dollars to make. So I, mean, I think it should have cost 35 or 40. You know, so that's it would have been fine, but that was part of the issue that. I mean, it's not something that 
He's contra- there are many people in America who don't like Muhammad Ali for whatever reason. I met him twice in my life. Uh, he lived in my town that I grew up in for a year and a half, and we used to ride our bikes to see him. So he had lived there. Uh, I was young. We would go just go to his house and hang out, so and he great. would come outside. And then I saw him in Florida randomly when he was promoting a, a restaurant chain that he was involved in called Champburger. I just saw him on the street, and we just pulled our car over and went over to say hi. So it was. So it's not um, personal. You just knew based on all the reasons you said before. This is before uh, Columbia Pictures. This is just, just a kid, you know. Uh, so nothing. No, nothing is personal. I mean, I never treated personal in business. It's I'm trained as a lawyer, so I was trained trained to not to. It doesn't mean I don't understand human behavior. And I would, I would do nice things. So when I was writing home video, we were making many independent movies and making independent programming because video was generating so much money they gave me a huge budget. Oh, good. So I was running a studio in home video. Wow. Uh, we were making about 30 movies a year, like mostly direct-to-video or small movies. And then we were also financing concerts. So I made a deal with Dave Chappelle to make like one of his first concert movies in 2004. It was called For What It's Worth. It was Showtime. And I remember when we did the deal, uh, I talked to his manager. We closed the deal. And I sent him like a couple of plasma TVs, you know. So it, it wasn't uh, lost on me that there's a human, a human element to how you deal with people, especially in the entertainment business. But there are people who would, you know, always be promoting that and for me it was like icing on a cake but not like uh, not to the deal had to stay on its own financial terms so any other projects that stick out during this period of time uh yeah there is when there are many things i was doing when i was running home video we made i started screen gems love yeah so what happened was we were running home video in home video i was making movies probably 20 or 30 a year we were doing urban direct-to-video movies I gave Will Packer, I bought his first movie. Wow. And then gave him his first deal, Will Packer. He made a few movies called Trois, and then we made Motives. And so we were doing well, and we, we thought we thought it was a marketplace that was underserved. Then Sony, we would have budget meetings. So Sony says, you made like $140 million this year. We'd like you to make 160 next year. And I said, I can't really do it because I can make maybe 2 to $3 million a movie. I can't make 30 new movies, 20 new movies. So if, but if I have make better or bigger movies and go theatrical with them, maybe I can hit the number. So I, I like, I said, I can make more money for you if you let me have a label, a studio label. And they were like, well, I don't know if we really want you to make those movies. I said, okay, so leave the numbers where they are because I can't, I was making Steven Seagal direct videos. I said, I can only make a certain amount of money on those movies. So they said, well, you can have a label. And I said, great. How much? And they said, we'll give you $40 million the first year to, to try play it with. So the two people who were working, working for me at home video, Clint Culpepper and Peter Schlesel, I said, congratulations. Now you'll have new business cards. We're not hiring anybody new. I don't want developer money. And you'll be, uh, everybody will want to be your best friend. I'll green light them. You guys can find the projects. We have to find a name. And I said, go through the old names of Sony, of Columbia, and find a name that's not being used now. So Screen, so Screen Gems was, at the, was in the 60s, a label for the TV division, for a, like a sub-label for TV. 
in addition to Columbia Television. Did you want to so bring was, one back so you didn't have to pay for a new one, a new name? You just didn't want to be too creative about it. Yeah, it, we didn't want to. Like, if you want to come up with a new name and you work at a large entity, you could, it could take you a year and a half. And usually you'll screw it up. You'll like spend a year and a half, pay some consulting person to do this. Everybody will not like it. So if you come up with a name that is already owned by the company, I mean, we thought it was kind of kitsch, Screen Gems. Anyway, so that's how that was born. I feel like that's a super smart thing to you know to think about because I almost feel like a lot of things I've learned from this, and I think someone gave me once really great advice about putting together a big, large project of any sort. You want to take, you know, you don't want to overanalyze every detail too much. You You're can't. never going to get anything done. There's going to be no efficiency. So the most efficient way in a way is, is to kind of take certain decisions that are not quite as important to you in this case, naming the, the naming something, right? Yeah. And just do it. And then all the other stuff that actually mean more to you or that you have more vested interest in that you can overthink a little bit, but you know, naming it isn't that big of a deal. And Screen Gems is great. It's a great name. It, it, it turned out to, it turned out to be kind of uh, super wise. And, uh, and I don't know if he was me or somebody else. All I know is it was presented as one of the options felt right. So uh, there was an executive at Columbia Pictures who uh, so we had bought in home video uh, at the time. We acquired international rights to a movie called Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. So the director was a guy named uh, Guy Ritchie. It was his first movie. I didn't get domestic on it, but we got some international. So we had an executive, a wonderful man at Columbia Picture named Gareth Wigan, who was uh, in his like early 60s at the time who ended up having a good relationship with Guy Ritchie. They both were British. And then he called me and said, look, we have this project that came in through Guy. We think it's too small for Columbia Pictures. Do you want it? So he tells me what it is. I said, done. I, he said, look, it's going to cost eight and a half to 10. I said, it's done. It's, per it's exactly what we want. So the movie was Snatch. So, but it, because it was British, the people of Columbia and distribution were like, it's not really for us. Maybe so. This is called Ben, and then all of a sudden the cast comes in, and you know it was all Brad Pitt was already attached, but then it was you know like an amazing cast, and you know, but they were right in a sense. It wasn't a big theatrical success. It did about twenty eight million at the box office, but in home video, which I was, I still was running that in addition to acquisitions and, and screen chips, it was massive. Why and do you think that is? So, because it was male, it was heavy male. So the thing that DVD was before DVD, there was rent. You go, you went to a blockbuster and rented a movie. If you bought a movie on VHS, it was highly likely it was a Disney animated movie. It was a, the sell the sell through aspect of video was mo Disney had about thirty five forty percent market share in that at like Walmart. People would buy things like Hercules. My wife was actually asked, and she wrote a script for one of the direct-to-video sequels. But um, she's a, a writer of, of, the, of coming of age, female voice. So yeah, so uh, so Disney, which wasn't so excited to be in DVD because they dominated video at the time. Uh, what DVD did is a lot of the buyers of the early adopters of DVD were, were young males 
who never bought movies. Now, this is before there was PlayStation. It's before Xbox. So at the time, there was only Nintendo and Sega cartridge games. So all of a sudden, young young men would go into Best Buy where they would look at electronics and buy, started buying movies by the buckets. So it became massive. It became a massive business because all of a sudden there were mail buyers in the DVD format of movies. And our logo was buy the movie for $19. It's cheaper than going to the movie theaters. So... Was, so that was that part of your strategy in acquiring movies then? Yes, at that point? of course. So, yeah. for example, then I get like I was one day I was at Con in I think ninety five, and I get a call from Lisa Henson, who at the time was running the studio, Jim Henson's daughter, Columbia. She said, you know, Robert Rodriguez wants to make a remake uh, El Mariachi. It's a movie we bought from him that he had made when he was a student. It's going to cost about seven million dollars. I said, she said, I don't really want to do it. And I said, but you're running DVD. <laughs> you're running home video and it's making, you know, most of the money now. So I figured I would check with you. And uh, and I said, Lisa, make the movie. And if you don't want to make the movie, I'll take the over. I'll make the movie because this is totally perfect for what, where the world is going. And it was Desperado. So it was... Wow. That's how that movie came together. So that was, it came into Columbia because we had El Mariachi because we made a deal with Robert Rodriguez when he was at film school. We bought his first movie. We bought his first movie. And he said he wanted to make it. He wanted to have a budget. He wanted to have, you know, Salma Hayek, who was nobody. He wanted, he wanted Robert, he wanted to have uh, Antonio Banderas. And uh, I'm like, this is a perfect video movie. And so she called me back the next day. She said, okay, we'll make the movie. She was she was wise, but she was wise to check because her instinct was she wanted to make Little Women, you know, and her instinct was sense and sensibility. Little Woman, she's a she's a woman, but she has good taste, and it's the classics. So those were you know those were like things that I helped really snatch. All of a sudden, we were the hottest place after Snatch with screen screen gems, and then we were doing African American movies, and everyone. Clint Culpepper did a great job creatively. And we kept our budgets really tight. We paid out good shares to talent. All the all those people, whether it's Taraji Henson or Morris Chestnut, Jamie Foxx, we all worked with them before they became big. And then John Singleton became uh, love John Singleton. Yeah, so he he became a friend. Uh, I pushed through Baby Boy and uh, and Poetic Justice and. Uh, his uh, inside of the company, I was a big advocate. A lot of people were like, John Singleton's movies are great, but they'll only do this, and it's only urban on it. So I'm like, so what? They're good, they make money. And then when he left, he came to see me on Hustle and Flow, and he, he said, I have the money to make it. And he said, you want to buy it? And I said, yeah, but you probably want to take it to Sundance and see if you can sell it for a lot of money, and that's what he did. I said, but if you get in trouble, I'll take the picture. Yeah. So uh, then he never called me afterwards. So it is. But then he called me eight years later to help him get some money out of Columbia. So even then you were like the fixer. Not the fixer. It's just that uh, when people need something, you know, and I called the TV division and the guy, the the head of TV was nice. And he said, look, I, I think I said, John, you know, he said he's not getting any overages for the movies. I said, you know. And I said, why don't you make a deal with him? So the TV division made a deal with him. 
to help help him get some money and to tide him over. And then he died unexpectedly at a young age. So there are people that you work with and you have a lifetime. And it doesn't mean that you're, he was not my friend. Wow, yeah. But we were friendly. Absolutely. And, you know, I saw him at Sundance or whatever, but I never, I never had drink with him. I never had dinner with him. It wasn't how I, you know, directors and actors are very social to keep themselves out there. And Networking. I, and I was just a dad with, you know, a young married dad and, you know, raising kids. And, and I had a lot of enormous pressure to make money for the company because as nice as these places seem on the outside, they're really not. Yeah. The pressure financially and, yeah. you know. It's very money driven. Yeah. Like not in a bad way. Not in a bad way. It, just, it's it money. It but is. some people are worse than others. I mean, the, st yes. the streamers are, are much worse about, you know, they they, take... they have no remorse yeah. uh, about relationships. More cutthroat. Well, they have, look, they, they're te they come from tech. They don't, they believe they can buy people. And if they buy them, there's no reason for them to be nice to them. Are you an actor? Do you always get that you should write a role for yourself? Did you know that Issa Rae wrote her web series that became the foundation for her Emmy-winning show, Insecure? In one of her past episodes, actor and mentor Tony Goldwyn talked about doing Ghost in a string of films and realizing he would have no control over his career unless he made his own opportunities. How does one go about doing that? Well, I recommend Emily Grace's Write Your Dream Role Starter Kit. You might remember Emily Grace from season three of Mentors on the Mic. She tells you to stop waiting for the industry to give you a role and write the role you were born to play. The Write Your Dream Role Starter Kit will help you write a compelling character that is tailored to your strengths, help show others what roles you were meant to play, and keep you in the creative hot seat. Go to the link in my show notes for how to get your starter kit now for free. Or that we had this one movie with a, a director who was fairly famous at the time, and he had a huge bomb with us. And he called me one day because I was asking him to do the DVD commentary. So he said, nobody at the studio will call me. And I said, it's not right. He said, I know, he, I, he said, I know the movie was a big bomb. I said, come see me. So he came to see me, and I said, what do you want to do? And he told me, and I said, I'll option the book for you. So I optioned the book, and then... Uh, you, I can't say what the book. Okay, that's right. I can't say the name of the director or 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 the book. Okay, no but worries. I said, look, I just and uh, and then two months later, he calls me. He said, you, you know, you I couldn't get out of bed till you did that for me. Oh. And I said, great. I said, well, look forward to getting the script. And then uh, two months later, he calls me. He said, I just took this big project at Universal. And that was that. So he's back in the game. He never called me after that. And that was that. Wow. So, I mean, you know, these are things that happen. Some, pe yeah. some people think I'm abrasive because I basically tell the truth how I see it rather than worry, worry about the whatever, but I really don't. And so, Ben, I, I think just in the interest of time, we'll have to skip ahead a little bit. How'd you get to BCO of Samuel Goldwyn? How did you, you know? So I, I, left, I left Sony in 2006, a little push, a little shove, and uh, over doing a leverage buyout of MGM, which I thought would be a disaster. It turned out to be a disaster. It's like, uh, you can't really put that debt on these companies. And then I was free. And then I did some tech investing. I did uh, invested in... You self-financed a lot of projects. Yeah, I, I self-financed 
some venture investments. Some some did well, some did poorly. I bought shares in Netflix in the beginning. Did well. Wow. I sold way early. Uh, I was very involved. I gave them the first contract for revenue wow. for DVD revenue sharing. So I knew them for years. That was such a massive upheaval of the industry. Yeah, and it, and it destroyed the business. And I we were offered to buy a quarter of the company or twenty percent, and I got turned down at Sony. And I explained it. But in the end, I think they've been pretty uh, not positive for the industry. So uh, they're they're not the best guys. I know them for a long time. But, you know, look, they're tech people. They're interested in creative destruction, which is I never believed in creative destruction. Like you have to destroy somebody else to make a better product. But they went after Blockbuster. They went after the theaters. Oh, they did, didn't they? Theaters, mom and pops. So they believed. And so I'm not a big uh for my value system, it's not. Well, it's not my value system. You know, I was selling movies for twelve to fifteen dollars, and Netflix wanted to sell you thousands of movies for the same price. So that collapsed the revenue in the industry. Yeah. So what? Then I made movies. So I got a little bored. So between two thousand, I started tech investing. I did a little consulting. Uh, I was offered to run Blockbuster more than once and they had too much debt and I couldn't figure out I wanted to do it because I thought the future was what it turned out to be but I couldn't do it with a billion dollars of debt on the books and Reed Hastings had no debt at the time so uh, then I started making movies and I made 11 movies in three three years with a partner and we each put up half the money he's a dear friend of mine his name is Ash Shah he's a I know his brothers. I know I knew his parents. So I had to deal with him at at, Colum- at Columbia. So and then the Goldman family. I distributed the Goldman family, the Goldman company when I was at Sony Columbia in video. So the C- the uh, C the COO called me and said that Sam Goldman Jr. was looking uh, to transition and was looking you know maybe. They would be happy if I bought half the company, maybe along with Peter. Peter wanted to stay in. Sam was in his mid-80s. John and Tony were doing well on their own. Tony's been on the podcast, yeah, by the yeah, way. Another brand I saw. Yeah, he is. And so Tony was doing, had a good acting career. John was at Paramount. I think he was had just finished up at Paramount. He didn't work with Sherry Lansing. And uh, they weren't interested in the Goldman Company. And so I went in. They had very few employees. Uh, Sam really wanted to produce, Sam Jr. He was not really interested in distribution. But the distribution company helped keep the lights on. So uh, I looked at the company and I said, I don't really know if I really want to work or be in the film business anymore. I said, so what we will let's see if we want to buy projects together. So for the first six months, I said, we'll find movies that we will acquire. I'll put up half the money and Goldman will put up half the money. And if it's working out, maybe we'll go to actually acquiring the company. If not, I will just have owned half of various movies, just like the movies that I made with Ash Shah the 11 movies that we made. So uh, they said, great. So uh, I started, we went to Sundance, we bought 
two movies, Lila and Eve, it's Viola Davis and uh, J-Lo. That was our first buy. And our second was a, a Richard Gere, uh, Dakota Fanning movie called The Benefactor. So, uh, and we did that for a while. And then we, we, I went through all the numbers with Peter. Peter's not really a numbers person. So I went through and I said, we came up with an evaluation to then. I said, let's, we might as well do it. So we'll come up with an offer to buy the company and we were going to present it to Sam and then he died two weeks, two weeks, uh, before the pre Yeah. So, uh, there was a funeral and then, uh, we ended up buying it a year later. They had to get a third party appraisal for the estate. Everything was done above board in terms of, you know, because- But it takes time. It took time. So we, we en ended yeah. up doing that. And so then we've been building it. You know, a lot has changed. We've migrated the company uh, in terms of when we launched it, Goldwyn had no, none of its own distribution except theatrical. And now we do all the distribution because I built distribution at Sony, so I know that business. Yeah. yeah. So that's it. And we, we don't really make many movies. We we sometimes do script stage commitments, but rare. We usually just Do you miss it? No. I, I if you actually make it with your own money, it's tense because it's actually your own money. It's personal. Yeah. yeah. If you, if somebody else is paying you, you care less. It's really hard, but you can't really be good at making a movie and also be good at making doing distribution on a movie. You have to pick one side if you really want to do a good job. So tell me a little bit about what that entails, what your responsibilities are day to day. What, what yeah, exactly so we're mean? remote at this stage because of COVID. So what we do is we staff meetings. We start the meeting with operations. So what that means is, uh, let's say we just did a deal with Univision, Spanish service to sell them some movies. Did we deliver the movies on time? Uh, or have they passed quality control? Uh, so we talk about, we start with process about actually the, it's very mundane, but obviously critical. Just like, otherwise it's like not having heat or electricity. Uh, so we start making sure all that's done and then we go into uh, uh, sales like, sending a package of eight movies to somebody to buy. Have we heard back? Or we get a call that somebody from uh, this company is interested in our movie. You know, did we call them back? So we, we focus on actually operations and sales first. Then we go into like acquisitions of new movies or what's it. So we have people who focus on it to watch a lot of things, things that we look for. Go to the festival. Yeah, I mean, I haven't the... been to one in five years, so... No, because I never, it was never my thing anyway. I went to a can when I was at Sony for the beginning because we were spending a lot of money. Uh, but it was never, I was never a festival person. Uh, I never uh, had big cocktail parties for stars. I just had them for customers. So I really didn't. So, yeah. But so so now do people go out? They'll they'll watch the movies. They'll recommend them to you. Do you still watch yeah, them, or you I, just go? I trust no, you. No, some things sometimes uh, I trust them, and we make an offer. If the if for example, if there's a movie that we like, and uh, I also know that we have a TV partner that's interested in having the movie after after video, like Showtime or Stars, they say we'll pay two hundred. 
and we say we'll pay this and then we'll do it together kind of we we front it all but if i know we have partners then i'll say go ahead and make it or if the risk is 100 or 200,000 i will let that go through so you're still, i'm still so you're still developing you're still like at the at the the origin of these movies right you're these, are fi- these, are, these are these are these are finished these are these are at the, at the festival. So and got so, it. So they're coming and to you. And with we're a competing film. with Netflix, HBO. We're got competing it. with anybody that could theoretically write a check. Apple TV. For example, two years ago, Sundance, I was uh, signed up to go, but I was virtual. So I watched Coda. We all liked it. So we're sitting around. And I said, okay, so let's pay, let's offer them two and a half million for the movie. Which is a lot of money for us. So, yeah. but you know, Apple bought it for twenty-five. It went, it went to Apple for twenty-five. Yeah. So it, it's irrelevant when they want something. It's irrelevant because they're not they're not running a P and L. It's unfair and leave us. It's leave aside whether there's real antitrust issues because I believe there may be, but because I don't think they really make money as a standalone service. You know, they may. They may. So then you have to decide what that means. And that's really a legal issue. It's not, you know, but I can tell you that I can't compete with that because if I buy the movie for 25, maybe it'll do a certain amount of money. You know, it's not. Exactly. So I can't compete with that or if Netflix buys it. So, so what's the pro for someone to go for you? Is it for people who aren't able to really? No, no. Cause we, we can be on that streaming platform too on via on VOD. So pro is, for them to close that deal is they make they make more money by selling to them than to give it to us. The the pro to giving it to us is in five years we'll still be pushing the movie, and it will be an old right. old story. And so if you sell your movie to Netflix, for example, and they put a big thing for the first two weeks, people have it's it. it. People have forgotten that that movie ever existed. So if I have a movie from uh, uh, like I have a movie that we bought. Uh, five years ago at TIFF. It's called Bang Gang. It's a French French movie. It's quite good. French kids like hooking up, taking photos of themselves, putting on social media what happens. So I bought them. We competed with Netflix on the movie. Uh, the sales agent, the French guy, said, look, you know, as long as he had made a deal with Netflix and then he decided he would rather go with Goldwyn. And, he, and I said, why? He said, you know, filmmaker would rather be with Goldwyn. And we know that you'll probably keep it going longer as a movie. And so we actually bought the movie and then we sold it to Netflix for two years. And it's done incredibly well for us because it's art plus commerce. So, but, you know, that was not a big buy for them. But anything that they want, they will buy or Apple. Now the pecking order is Apple seems to be spending the most money and then it's uh, Netflix and then Hulu and then Amazon in some configuration of that. But look... They do a great job, those services. They promote the movies, but they don't promote them forever and because they're on to new content as the drivers. So how does an independence survive? It's it's a good, good question. And there's always new people popping up that want to monetize movies. Uh, you have to be patient and work with a, not a lot of new players. And you have to you know be prudent and with your money. Not borrow a lot. I mean, there's a whole separate conversation of how you be a filmmaker in this world. But how to be a company in this world is you just have to be an early adopter in the new world. 
before the studios come in or the streamers come in and swoop in and take the market. And then you have to constantly transition. Well, so then I guess last question, um, what do you think the future of all this is? I mean, are you feeling positive or? It depends on what it is. I mean, I read more than I watch movies or watch TV. I watch shows with my wife, which I enjoy doing. Uh, she's here. Hopefully she heard that. No, I'm not like a, I'm a doer more than a watcher. But the future is really, the question is, what's a movie and what's a TV show? What's a, what's a TikTok video versus uh, a YouTube video versus uh, something that you should pay for? So the real issue is um, whether it's a generational issue. Uh, people, when TV came in, people hated it because of the radio and they didn't want TV to hurt the radio. They thought it would reduce the quality. So there's always been a whole lot. When video came in, the theaters were just ready to kill themselves. So there's always, when Netflix came in, you know, it, it's a kind of killed the video business. If they can replace the revenue or, or, or make creative people happy, you know, God bless Netflix if they can do that, you know. So it's really about young people. Right now, it's like for millennials, they don't really consume a lot. They spend money on other things. Then, then they, get so, they grew up with so many free entertainment options. So that's the big question, whether eventually as they get older, they'll be willing to pay for stuff. I don't know. As a millennial myself, I'm, I'm going to try to it, think about it. It's that a real issue because people, I have a lot of, my staff is really young, many, and I'm not. And I say to my staff, when you're recommending us do the movie, I'm like, okay, so how do we make our money back? Would you pay to see that? And usually they look at their shoes, you know, as my, they don't look at their shoes, but they're, well, they'll, well, they'll wait till it's on a streaming service or whatever. I said, so there you go. So we can't really pay a lot for the movie or we, or we don't really want it, you know, or we have to think about what, how the economics work. So many of the Goldwyn movies is, you know, we have foreign language movies. We had, we won Academy Award uh, two years ago for another round, a Danish movie, which was wonderful. Another which round. Oh, yeah, 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 so of course. We picked that up. Uh, yeah. That's and amazing. so we and we had another movie up for an Academy Award that year. Last year we had one. So we look at things which are really good. And we know that if we don't make our money back the first year or the second year, it's at least the good content and eventually. So, and a lot of our films are for older people. So you have a lot of long-term It's a long-term well, strategy. We're not looking to just grab people to watch it on a Nielsen rating or for Netflix week, saying number one movie in the world. You know, and it, and and they'll do that, and they'll do the lowest common denominator, like Dahmer. I don't want to be in the world of Dahmer. Okay, I, I'm money isn't important enough to me to. Well, did you hear that people are dressing well, up? But like that's him the thing. I mean, to me, it, it is what it is. I I'm, I'm sitting in judgment because I think if you do have the power, it's good to it, it's good to enlighten rather than degrade. Yeah. It comes with great. Well, I mean, I do, but tech power. people don't. You know, they think if they can right. make money yeah. and if they can be famous, then that's the most important. Well, Ben, I know you have to go. Thank you. I, I mean, I could talk to you for a lot longer. This is incredibly interesting for me, but I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you answering all of my questions. And uh, I wish and you I the best you. For, with everything. And obviously, uh, we like having young friends. And if, if there's anything that yes. we can do, reach out. And I, Looking forward to you having a very successful and meaningful career. Thank you, Van. I appreciate that. Okay. 
I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you haven't yet, do me a favor, drop a five-star review, follow on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, and find me on Instagram. I'm at at Michelle Simone Miller and at Mentors on the Mic. Share this in your stories. Let me know what you think. Share it with a friend, and I'll see you next time. 